If you got your Bibles, turn to the book of Judges, chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there's probably one you can find on your uh, smartphone, or there is a copy of the Bible in front of you, and it's the version that I'll be reading from. But we're going to be looking at Judges, chapter 3, Old Testament book, um, right after um, the book of Joshua, right after they are establishing themselves in the Promised Land. And so if you're new to the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, so seventh book of the Old Testament of the Bible is there. And we're going to be in Judges, the third chapter today. Now, um, I was gone last week. Our, our family, we went on a family vacation to Orlando, Florida. We did five theme parks in five days with four kids. And all of God's people said, why? That's what you said, all right? We had a great time, a great time as a family. We drove down there last Saturday, drove back yesterday. And Jeff was here in my absence last week. I'm so thankful to him and appreciative of the message he brought. And if you were here last week, what he said is true. I, I said, we're going to be doing this study on judges. I'll give you your pick. You take whatever judge you want to take. And he chose Samson. And then uh, as I watched his sermon this week uh, online, uh, I was watching. He was talking about the reason he chose Samson, he talked about these heroes that he had growing up, people like the Hulk and uh, He-Man. And even today, he has like an irrational love of the rock, right? I mean, like these really buffed out guys. And so as we were thinking about that, I thought about one of my heroes growing up. And this is from a movie um, series of movies that my dad and I bonded over. It's Father's Day, and so you're thinking about, I'm thinking about my dad and, and all of that. And we bonded over this series of movies. And so I want to show you a picture. He showed you pictures last week. I'll show you some pictures of one of my heroes growing up. This is one of mine right here, all right? Rocky Balboa. Now, I'm not talking about Rocky 5, 6, 12, 38, whatever they've made now. I'm talking about the first four Rocky films. Like, one Thanksgiving, my family went to see Rocky 3. That was our Thanksgiving big event after we ate. We went to see Rocky 3. And you remember, the reason I liked Rocky, like Jeff likes all these guys that are like the big powerful guys. I liked Rocky because he was always the underdog. He wasn't supposed to win, right? I mean, he was in the first couple of movies, he's fighting Apollo Creed, the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, considered in the movie one of the greatest fighters of all time. In the third movie, he's fighting, you remember the name of the guy he's fighting in the third movie? Clubber Lang, who's played by Mr. T, right? Remember in the movie, he like picks guys up and he like knocks guys out. Hulk Hogan was in that movie. It was like over the top. And the fourth one, he's over in Russia, Fighting a guy that's shooting up on steroids every day while he's out lifting logs in a barn somewhere, right? It's like this this underdog story. And I love that story of Rocky. And if you remember, most of you don't have a memory of Rocky like I do, but pretend you do for me, all right? And so in the first couple of movies, he fought. And one of his advantages is that he had a fighting style that was a little different than his opponent. And in the second movie in particular, he decides he's going to fight traditional And he does for most of the movie, most of the fight. And in the last round, his trainer, Mick, tells him, switch it now, now. He's yelling. I can't do the voice of Mick. If I tried, it would be terrible. But he's telling him, now, switch it. And he wanted him to switch to fight Southpaw. Now, you tell me, what does Southpaw mean? He fights what? Left-handed. 
And because he'd been fighting right-handed the whole fight, he was a little bit of an ambidextrous fighter, but the last one he wanted to switch, and he does towards the end of the round, and I hate to spoil something that's been out for 39 years, but he wins the fight in the second movie, all right? Becomes undisputed heavyweight champion. Now, this is from the fourth movie when all the Russians love him are chanting Rocky um, at the end of the movie. But he switched to left-handed, and it made the difference. How many of you here are left-handed? We got any left-handers? Look at that. Jason Skiller went up strong right there. Right? Charles, all right. There are some disadvantages to being left-handed sometimes, right? What What are some disadvantages to being left? Left-handers, help me out. What? Are, what? Spiral notebooks that's on the wrong side, all right? What else? As a right-handed person, eating next to a left-handed person is hard because you hit elbows. You're fighting for that space, right? Um, if you like to play sports, a lot of times the equipment is made for right-handers, all right? Golf clubs, scissors are made for right-handers. I didn't know this till this week. Now, I'll leave the left-handers to say this is true or not. Apparently, zippers are made for right-handers. Okay. All right. You didn't expect to hear that today, all right? But you know there's some advantages to being left-handed, all right? Jason, I don't know if you know this or not, but you are more likely to be a genius if you're left-handed than right-handed. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> so we got that. More More likely to be a genius... In sports, if you're decent at sports, being left-handed can be an advantage. If you're a left-handed pitcher, that can be an advantage. If you're a shooter, if you know defender, it can be an advantage. And I did this. I read this two different places on the internet, and so it has to be true. Um, you can see underwater if you're left-handed better than right-handers. Now that really doesn't help you in any way. But do you know that being left-handed has not just been kind of an anomaly through history? but that it's actually been considered something of a detriment and even that something's wrong with you, right? So in Latin, the word for left is sinister, which is the same word for evil. In French, I'm not going to try to pronounce the French word, but the French word for left-handed is awkward. And in English, the word left we get comes from the word which means weak. Throughout history, in fact, people weren't allowed to have jobs because they were left-handed. They weren't allowed to go into certain careers because they were left-handed. People didn't want left-handed warriors. They didn't want um, people that were doing things with their hands that were left-handed. They were considered to have something wrong with them. And we won't debate today whether the left-handers here have something wrong with them. That's for home. But that is the general idea in the ancient world, which makes what happens in Judges chapter 3, interesting. Because the first major judge in the book of Judges, the first one that's given a big, significant amount of space, is left-handed. And his name is Ehud. By the way, I just want to tell you again, I tell you all this all the time. When you're looking for baby names, like Judges has some great ones. There's in this chapter alone, in chapter 3, there's Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. And I haven't heard any of those recently, so you're okay about not having your kids having the same name. So just giving some suggestions. But Ehud is a left-handed judge that's going to save Israel. We're in the midst of this series called Broken Saviors. We call it Broken Saviors for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's because God does, in the book of Judges, over and over and over and over again, save his people from Terrible danger. 
or being oppressed or being ruled by another country. But they're broken because they don't ultimately give the satisfaction that is necessary for our souls. And what happens is they have to be saved again and again and again and again because the salvation that comes doesn't stick. And they fall back into the same pattern of sin and running away from God. The word that is used sometimes in here is they forget God. They walk away from God. They do what God intended them not to do. In fact, chapter 3, and we're going to start reading the story of Ehud down in verse 12, but it's interesting the setting of it comes in verse 1, where it says, the nations of the Lord left in order to test all those in Israel who had experienced none of the wars. It was to teach the future generations how to fight and battle. So it tells us that there are nations around. The situation is they've entered into the promised land. They are establishing a place in the promised land. But they have all these people around that are fighting them, that are going against them, that are that are a thorn in their side. And God says they're there for a couple of reasons. First of all, it tells us in the first couple of chapters, they're there because the people that were supposed to drive them out did not drive them out. But then God used them to test them and to teach them. To test them when they remain faithful when difficulty came. And to teach them how to fight because it was a necessary skill to maintain the country. As I read that, I thought about, and this is just a side note, this is is just free information on the side. How many times in our lives do we have something that is continually in our lives? A weakness, a difficulty, a problem, hurt. We wonder what it's there for. Perhaps part of the reason is, is because it was something God told us to get rid of and we didn't. But part of the reason is God is testing our faithfulness and teaching us to follow him even in the midst of difficulty. And so chapter 3 tells us first the story of Othniel, who is this judge that we're not going to talk about much at all today. And at the end of the chapter, it talks about this guy named Shamgar, who we're not going to talk about much at all. But what's interesting is the way those two guys handle being God's judges are so different. Othniel is by the book, the way the book tells us it's going to happen. They're going to cry out for help. God's going to send a messenger. He's from Caleb's family, so he's from a line of godly people. He comes and he saves his people, and they have 40 years of rest. Shamgar at the end of this chapter has one verse in the whole Bible. All we know about him is that he killed a bunch of Philistines with an ox goad, cattle prod. And in the midst of that, we have the story of Ehud. Now, here's what I want to tell you about this story before we even get started. I feel like this is one of those stories we need to have one of those um, discretion is advised moments. This is not a G-rated story, all right? It's in the Bible, it's real, it's there, but it is a story that some of you know what's coming, some of you remember the story of Ehud, some of you are like, I didn't know the word Ehud existed in the language, all right? As we read this story, you're going to see it is a graphic story, and I want to read it, stopping at points along the way, and then give you some things out of it that I see for our own application. It starts in chapter 3, verse 12. Then the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. That verse will happen again and again and again in Scripture. What's interesting to me is we've already seen that verse a couple of times and we're in chapter 3. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave King Eglon, just a, a little note here, his name literally means King Heifer. King Large Cow. Of Moab, power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's 
sight. And so here's the picture. They've had 40 years of rest for whatever reason. In that 40 years of rest, they start to go back to their sin. They start to follow other gods. They start to walk away from God. They start to forget God. And as they forget God, as they walk away from God, it creates an environment where they can be taken over by the Moabites, by Eglon. And God, it says in scripture, because they have been unfaithful to him, empowers Eglon to take them over. Next verse. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Malachites, he gets those together to join forces with him. He attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. Anybody know what the city of Palms is? Most people think it's Jericho. Now think about this. Even if you haven't been much of a Bible scholar, you've heard of the battle of Jericho. The biggest victory the Israelites had entering into the promised land was Jericho, where they walked around the walls. You know, whether you've read the Bible version or watched the VeggieTales version, they walk around the wall, blow the trumpet, the walls come tumbling down. Huge victory, most fortified city they were going to face. God does it without them bringing up any kind of weaponry. The walls come down. And here they are. Just a few years later, in this place that they would claim as their biggest victory is the place they're defeated by Eglon and the Moabites. And then it says the Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. 40 years of peace, 18 years of captivity. Verse 15. Then... The Israelites cried out to the Lord. Now think about that phrase for a minute from what just came. How long were they in captivity? 18 years. And after 18 years, somebody finally went, hey, guys, have we thought about talking to the Lord about this? 18 years, the time it takes from a baby to become an adult. The Israelites cried out to the Lord and he raised up Ehud, son of Gerah. Now, here's the phrase, a left-handed Benjamite. Now, the actual phrase there, left-handed Benjamite, means a Benjamite who did not have use of his right hand or had something wrong with his right hand or had a deformed right hand. The Benjamites are known, by the way, in Israel's history, in the history of the world, for being ambidextrous. And so being left-handed wasn't necessarily that crazy of a thing, but... They were taught to not use their left hand impossible and learn to use their right hand. Ehud could not use his right hand. He was disabled. His right hand had some deformity or he couldn't use it. The Lord chose him as the deliverer. The Israelites sent him with a tribute for King Eglon of Moab. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab, who was an extremely fat man. Now, why was why is that in there? This is not body shaming, by the way. This is just expressing what's happening. Why do you think it told us it was a fat man? Well, there's there, I think a couple of reasons. First of all. If you haven't read the story before, something's going to happen that involves him being very fat. The second reason is, in their day and time, to be fat was to be wealthy. 
Like today, everybody wants, uh, you know, Jeff in his introduction, I said, everybody wants the, the, lean, the, the trim, lean, muscular, healthy body. But in their day, the true sign that you were wealthy and good and had enough was that you were fat. What, overweight, large. Now, why would that be the case? Because the most scarce thing they had or their most prized commodity was food. And if you had plenty of food to the point that you could eat whatever you wanted and over what you wanted, it meant you were very wealthy. Secondly, the reason that this is here is because we're going to discover in a moment, we're going to talk about King Eglon of Moab. And what we find out is that he got the way he is as an extremely large man, an extremely fat man, because he ate the tributes that the Israelites were required to bring him in large bulk. And so he became this way by oppressing the Israelites. Verse 18. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. And so it's lots of people with him. It was a huge tribute, lots of food. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, silence. And all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Just so you know, that usually they had both a throne in those kind of rooms and a bathroom. That also plays an important role. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand. I love the details given in this description. Took the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it, so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly. I tried to think of what sound that would make and try to replicate that for y'all, and chose not to. And all of God's people said, thank you, right? Anybody want to try that? Like, What would it sound like for a sword being sucked into a belly and closed over the top of it. Okay, that's good. Thanks. Sorry. I didn't do that in the first service, and now I know why I didn't do that in the first service. Sorry. And his waist came out. It's a fun story, isn't it? Ehud escaped by the way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. When Eglon's servants get back, Ehud's gone. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. Why did they think he was relieving himself in the cool room? Because what? Yes. It smelled like waste. Some of y'all are uncomfortable right now. This is the Bible, all right? The servants waited until they became embarrassed that... He has taken way too long. What is going on in there? Saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So he took the key and opened the doors. And the original Hebrew writes this almost as if it's a complete shock to them. Almost like a, what? There was the Lord lying dead on the floor. I don't know why my voice went to 12-year-old boy there, but it was there. (laughs) Ehud escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sarah. And after he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down from the hill country and he became their leader. 
He told them, follow me, because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Verse 30, Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for 80 years. So it's a graphic story. It's an interesting story, right? It's not what you normally hear in Sunday school. We're not teaching this in the Gospel Project downstairs today, I don't think. We don't have any picture graphs of the progression of the story there. But the question is, so what does it teach us? Why is it here? And here's what I really do believe. I believe, first of all, and this isn't one of the main points of the sermon, but I believe that one of the things that's happening in Judges chapter 3 is that God shows us at the very beginning in Othniel that sometimes he works through the tried and true, the, the progressive way of doing things exactly like it's supposed to be done. It had given us a formula, the formulaic way of God sends a deliverer from a family that is prestigious. And then sometimes God goes off the map and does things that we would never expect. That God is completely unpredictable. And when you're sovereign, you can be. When you have all the power in the universe and you have the will to do with it whatever you want, the ability to have freedom to do whatever you want, you can be unpredictable. He chooses the right guy from the right family and then he chooses a left-handed Benjamite from the littlest tribe you can imagine that had done nothing to distinguish itself. And that God leads him as well. Three things I see in this passage that we need to be aware of. And I think especially this first one is something that's very difficult for us to grasp. And the first thing that we see in this story is this. God turns our weakness into strength. When we think about how Judges progresses, what we discover is God uses some really unlikely people. I mean, we've moved from Moses. I mean, you know Moses, right? Moses is an imposing figure, Charlton Heston-like guy that is just powerful and big. We move from him to Joshua, who stands up and says, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And we get those great, great leaders chosen by God, mantle passed down from one to the other, and then you get into judges and suddenly the people that are chosen are not quite as put together. I mean, you've got Ehud's a left-handed person, Benjamin. You've got in the next story, we'll talk about next week, Deborah and Barak. Deborah was a strong woman, but in that day and time, women were not chosen to lead nations in Israel. And the guy beside her is a cowardly man. You've got Gideon, who was timid in his leadership. And even when you get out of the judges, what we see carrying on through the Old Testament is that God chooses leaders that aren't always immediately identifiable as the leader that they should be. When you think about the greatest leader of the Old Testament, the greatest king of the Old Testament, think of David. But when David was chosen, he was a scrawny shepherd boy. And what Ehud shows us and what Old Testament shows us, what the New Testament shows us, is that so much of what our society, so much of what our America teaches about what leadership looks like and what used by God looks like is contrary to what Scripture teaches is really all about being used by God. 
reading a book this week while we were on vacation called From Weakness to Strength by Scott Sauls. And I just read you what he read, what he wrote in here. It's just fascinating to me. It says, Jesus offers a radically different understanding of what it means to be a leader than the current American culture. He says, for example, in America, credentials qualify a person to lead. In Jesus, the chief qualification is character. In America, what matters most are the results we produce. In Jesus, what matters most is the kind of people we are becoming. In America, success is measured by material accumulation, power, and the positions that we hold. In Jesus, success is measured by material generosity, humility, and the people whom we serve. In America, it's laughable to come in last and laudable to come in first. And yet Jesus says the first will be last and the last will be first. In America, leaders make a name for themselves to become famous and sometimes treat Jesus as a means to that end. In Jesus, leaders make his name famous and treat their own positions, abilities, and influence as a mean to that end. In America, leaders crave recognition and credit. In Jesus, leaders think of themselves less and give credit to others. In America, leaders compare and compete so they'll flourish. In Jesus, leaders sacrifice and serve so others will. In America, leadership often means my glory and happiness comes at your expense. And Jesus' leadership always means your growth and wholeness comes at my expense. In America, the strong and the powerful rise to the top. In Jesus, the meek inherit the earth. The Apostle Paul said that he had gained everything you can want as a rabbi. And he said, but everything I have, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. Old Testament guys like Noah who helped to restart the entire world, and yet as soon as he gets out of the ark, is found drunk and passed out naked. And Abraham, who lied about his wife twice so that he could save his own skin. Peter was a hot-headed fisherman. Rahab was a prostitute. Paul was a persecutor of the church. And yet God used these weak men for his glory. And even our Savior comes in weakness, born of a virgin in a small town, from a smaller town of Nazareth, homeless, completely unexpected, and he pays for our sins in the ultimate weakness of dying on the cross before being elevated in the resurrection. You see, here's what this story reminds us, is that God can take the weakest parts of us and make it our strength. When you think of the story of Ehud, think about this. No one would have ever thought of him as a great warrior. Why? Because he couldn't use his right hand. It was disabled. So when they asked somebody to go and take the tribute to the king, they chose him. Why? Because his right hand was disabled. He couldn't do anything to the king. He would be a good solution. When he goes to the king, the king accepts him without any worry. Why? Because he doesn't have a good right hand. There's nothing to worry about with him. When he says, hey, I've got a secret message for you, the king is like, awesome, I love secrets. Everybody else get out of here. He wouldn't have done that if he had presented as a strong warrior with a strong right hand. And when the king stands up and leans over to hear the secret from Ehud, he is not suspecting in the least that when Ehud takes his left hand that he's going to reach down and take a sword and use it to kill him his weakness was that he couldn't use his right hand the strength he had in that moment was that he couldn't use his right hand God takes our weakness 
and makes it our strength. And here's the reason he does that. We're going to talk about this again at the end of the sermon, so I'm going to give you a preview there. He does it because when he uses our weakness for his strength, he gets the glory instead of us. Second thing I see in this passage. One day, we will retell the stories of our suffering with laughter and joy. Commentator named Dale Davis says that most commentaries, and this is true because I read a lot of commentaries on this, miss the fact that this is supposed to be a humorous story for the Israelite people. This was a story they would sit around the campfire and they would go, you remember that story about the guy that was left-handed that stabbed the king and it went all the way into his belly? You remember that? Well, that was awesome. And what we have to remember is that story of deliverance comes after they had been impressed for 18 years. And they were being oppressed not by just of anybody. They were being oppressed by Moab. And if you know biblical history, Moab is related to them. It's Lot's family. So it's just like their little cousin that has come and taken over their land and is now ruling them. In fact, in the first two chapters, Moab was so insignificant on the world map that when the first two chapters list all these nations that they needed to worry about in the promised land, not one mention of Moab is made. Nobody thought Moab was a threat. It says in the book of Numbers that when Israel came through and Moab saw them, they trembled and were overcome with fear. And yet, Scripture says that they used King Eglon and Moab to take them over. And so I want us to realize, first of all, the agony that the Israelites went through for 18 years. They weren't just being oppressed by another nation. They were being oppressed by their little cousins. Almost like when the little brother finally gets to where he can beat the big brother in a game. When I was, uh, when I was growing up, I, I'm the little brother. My brother's five and a half years older than me. Uh, most of you don't know my brother. He lives here in the area, Brian. But Brian was always bigger than me, both um, older than me, but also he's bigger than me. He's built bigger than me. And so um, I was always trying to beat him, always trying to get him, always trying to, to do something where I had to upper hand him. And my brother was an impressive guy. I mean, he um, was was big man on campus in high school. When he went to college, he went to UT Knoxville. Um, when he was in Knoxville, his senior year at Knoxville, they, they choose one student from the entire system of UT schools to be on the board of trustees. My brother was the student on the board of trustees at Knoxville for a year as a student representative, which I loved because I got to sit in the president's box for a UT Ole Miss game. But he was like big man. I mean, like my brother was, they have this annual thing where they put on a big show. My brother won best actor for that, for the all of UT Knoxville. And so he's a big, you know, he cast a big shadow. And my brother was also a bigger guy. I mean, he's, he's still bigger than me. He's a bigger guy back then. And I was not. Like, when I was a junior in high school, I weighed 140 pounds, and I was this height. Taylor, I no longer weigh 140 pounds, all right? And so when we would wrestle or when we would do stuff, he was just bigger than me. And I remember one particular um, summer, he came home from college. He was home for just a few weeks. He was doing an internship. And he and his buddies from high school were going to go play basketball down at the high school gym. And he said, they said they needed a couple extras. I was in middle school at the time. And they, he said, hey, Lyle, you want to go play with us? And I said, great. And he said, well, I'll vouch for you. We'll go. So we went and it was, you know, five on five, full court. And my brother leaned over to me, being the good big brother, and said, hey, I'm going to guard you. And I'm not going to play too tough. I don't want these other guys hurting you or anything. I said, okay. 
So we come down the court, and as we're running down the court, he says to me, he says, hey, here in a minute, I'm going to give you a little space. You take the shot. I know you can hit it. You hit the shot just so you can kind of like, so they are like, okay, this guy can play with us. I said, all right, that's awesome, Brian. Thanks. So Brian did. He kind of stepped off of me. I hit the shot. No big deal. Next time down, um, he guarded me a little more closely, and I hit the shot again. And then the next time down, I hit a three over him. Next time down, I drove past him for a layup. And he, next time down the court says, if you make another shot, I'm going to beat you up when we get home. Don't do it again. Because little brother was starting to take over for big brother. Israel was big brother. And the Moabites, their little brother, had oppressed them for 18 years. And then God sends a left-handed deliverer. And when they told this story, they would have told it with details and they would have laughed around the campfire. Can you believe? Do you remember when? you have any family stories like that? Like maybe your family was in danger and then you got out and you look back on it now and you kind of laugh about it. Or something bad happened and you're like, you couldn't believe it happened. And then you, you look at it 10 years later and you're like, man, it's crazy. And you just laugh about it. I mean, all around our family, I told this story a few years ago, but um, we used to laugh about the day we went canoeing a couple of years ago. And um, we got in the boat and the first thing that Maddie starts yelling is, we're all going to die, we're all going to die. And halfway down, the, or almost at the end of the river, the boat flips on Luke and I because Maddie's no longer in our boat because she kept yelling, we're going to die. And we put her in the other boat. And Luke and I are stranded in the middle of the river. And when I look back on that moment, like I can remember the real fear that was there. Like Luke and I are there by ourselves in the middle of the river. And even when some people like... If you remember, some of you have never heard this story, but we see some people start to come around the corner and it's three teenage girls. And we're like, God, we need something little. We need a little. We got to get this boat up out of the water. And two of the girls were too scared to come over to us. Thanks, God. That's not what we were really looking for right now. Right. I remember the real fear. Now, when we tell the story, it's all fun and games. Right. Laughing about it. I thought about this week. We're at Disney World and uh, we rode. Space Mountain together as a family. All six of us. Including Ava. Ava was tall enough to ride Space Mountain by about half an inch. And she was determined she was going to ride it. And so the ways, if you've ever, how many of you have ridden Space Mountain, right? So you know it's in the dark, roller coaster, right? And so the way it was set up with Eli, you were in the front, right? You were the front one. Eli, Ava, Susan, and then in the next car was Luke, Maddie and me, and we go, Space Mountain's dark, stuff starts flying at you, you're going around, and all of a sudden we start to hear, ah, ah, ah. I'm like, what in the world is that? Then I realize, it's Ava, that's what that is. And she is literally, we, it's, it's somewhere between screaming, um, like, get me out of here, like exhilaration, and so we are just like, we don't know what's going on. So we get off the ride and everybody's like, you okay? Like Susan says she's trying, are you okay? Are you everything good? Like she just, ah, ah, the whole way. We get out and we're walking out and we start talking and we're like, okay, how was it? And she goes, it's my new favorite ride. We're like, what? <laughs> she loved, like, I said, well, what were you doing? And she couldn't really give an explanation. It was just like, I don't know. And roller coasters are kind of that way. Like when you're on it, you're like, what in the world? I rode, um, the new Tower of Terror in Disneyland with Jeff Kelly and Ellie Thomas last year. And both of them are yelling the whole way, why did 
I get on this thing? I wish I had video of it. I would show it every week. All right. But then you get off and you're like, man, that was awesome. The Israelites would sit around and tell this story, even about their oppression, and they would talk about how God saved them through Ehud, and they would say, man, it was awesome. The cool thing for us as believers is, Scripture says, that our present sufferings are nothing compared to the future glory we will see. And there are going to be some days sitting around heaven when that trial that you've just come through or that you are getting ready to go into or you're in the middle of right now, when you're going to sit around and you're going to go, remember how God saved me in the midst of that? And you're going to laugh about what was the most painful moments of your life. Because that's how good the glory we've got coming is. I love the fact that this is a funny story. And I know it's gross. It's kind of boy humor funny, but it's funny, all right? It's kind of sarcastic funny, but I am sarcastic, all right? And so I love it. And I love the fact that God is showing us through the story that it's dangerous to oppress God's people. Eglon thought he had it made for all this time, but God's people are going to be saved. He shows us that God makes his people able to laugh after sorrow and that following God is not dull and boring. We have given Christianity a bad name when the world thinks that following Jesus is boring. It is anything but boring when you follow him the way he intends to be followed. And here's the last thing and then we're done. Availability is more important than ability. Ehud was an unlikely candidate. He was a left-handed Benjamite. He was a guy that could not use the right hand. And in that day and time that treated people that way poorly, it was unheard of that he would have any kind of prominence. He was from the the tribe of Benjamin. The only word we have of Benjamite tribe before this story is in chapter 1, we're told they did not do what they were supposed to do. They didn't drive out the people they couldn't. And yet Ehud becomes, not only does he kill Eglon, but what happens after that? He becomes the left-handed Benjamite, becomes the leader of the Israelite army that establishes a peace for 80 years. God isn't really concerned about your ability. He'll give you what you need. He's concerned about your availability. Do you know there's one miracle that's told in all four Gospels and only one miracle told in all four Gospels? It's the feeding of the 5,000. And if you remember that story, my favorite part of the story is, my favorite part is that Jesus says, hey, we need to feed these people. And Philip, who would have been the accountant in the group, says, Jesus, if we all worked like the rest of our lives, we can't feed all these people. He starts counting up wages for the day. And Andrew says, I think sarcastically, well, we got this little boy over here with a couple of fish and some bread. And he brings it and he presents it to him and Jesus takes it and turns it into the 5,000 feeding. I remember Dr. Dub Oliver presenting that message a couple of years ago and just being struck again in that moment and since then with the idea That God really isn't asking us, what does your resume look like? He's asking us, is your calendar free? Bring what you have, give it to Jesus and let him go. God advances his kingdom through willing vessels. And he's not looking for the most qualified. He's looking for the most available. 
One of my favorite stories is about uh, a pastor that meant a lot to me early in my life, who's a pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, Adrian Rogers. And it tells the story that one day he was preaching at his church in Bellevue that has thousands of people that come on Sunday mornings. And as he was preaching at Bellevue, he said, how many of you in the room today were valedictorians or salutatorians? And people raised their hand. He said, good, go and stand up, stand up and stay standing. How many of you here were all American in some sports? Stand up. How many of you went to college on a scholarship, were able to get most of your college paid through scholarships? Stand up. How many of you were a homecoming queen? How many of you graduated with honors? And he went on and listed awards and titles till about a third of the congregation was standing. And as each one stood, people would applaud like, great, great, great. He looked at them as they were standing. He said, for those of you standing in the room, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is God can use you too. The bad news is you aren't his first choice. God doesn't care about our accolades, about our awards. He cares about whether we're available. Ehud was not a guy that would have been valedictorian or all-American, but he was available and willing to do what God asked him to do. My question to you today is, are you available? And you're willing to go where God asks you to go to do what God asks you to do at whatever cost God asks you.